Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Hey, everybody. Extra special podcast today, and I never say that. Well, maybe I have once or twice, but this time, this time I mean it. Adam Schiff, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, joining me for a second time, and this time... Adam has a book out, huge bestseller, Midnight in Washington, how we almost lost our democracy and almost certainly will if we Democrats don't get our shit together. I really should have had the book out in front of me there. I These long subtitles are hard to, to remember, but it's something like that. And I read the book. Actually, I read 97.2% of the book with the intention of finishing uh, the remainder 2.8% uh, just right before our conversation. And I knew the exact percentage because I got it on Kindle. And uh, it, Kindle will tell you how exactly how far you are along on it. And now the reason I got it on Kindle is that it was sold out at my bookstore. Now, for my listeners who are not in the publishing business, that's a very good sign. And I have to tell you, I really ate up this book. And I had the intention to finish it before the interview, but something happened. And I, I don't remember what it was. And that's the kind of interesting story my listeners have grown to expect on this podcast. But I, I knew where the remaining 2.8% was going because we are in a very precarious moment in our nation's history. And actually, the, the conversation that you're about to enjoy ends with, with this. The Republican Party and the right have had some pretty nefarious people, you know, around for quite some time. Your Joe McCarthy's, your your Newt Gingrich, your Rush Limbaugh, Roger Stone, Tom DeLay, uh, Roger Ailes, the Koch brothers, Ann Coulter, Sean Hannity, now Tucker Carlson, Jim Jordan, Mitch McConnell. But when this party hitched its wagon to Donald Trump, a, um, a very talented psychopath who is completely untethered, not just the truth, but to anything other than his own wealth and glory and power, um, we are really closer than we've been to seeing our 200-year-plus experiment in, in democracy just evaporate. Not one Republican voted for the Freedom to Vote Act this week in the Senate. You can see where this is going. States like Georgia and Texas and Florida and Arizona passing laws that give state legislatures, you know, the the uh, power to reverse the outcomes of elections. We're really just hanging on here is what we're doing. Fortunately, we have one of our steadiest hands with me here, Adam Schiff, a great one today, you know. For a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe 
würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. I enjoyed the book. I really did. As much as you can enjoy a book that's entitled Midnight in Washington, how we almost lost our <laughs> democracy and still could. Now, I finally read it. I'm the first person you've interviewed who read the title properly, right? Um, you did. You gave it the gravitas it needs. Yeah, well, there's a lot of gravitas in here and a lot of history. I think you wrote a lot of this for history, especially the first impeachment, which you obviously were the manager of. And there's a lot of stuff there that historians, when looking at that, are they're going to mine. And you were conscious of that, I, I assume, when you were writing it. I, I was. I was really writing with two audiences in mind. I wanted uh, in the future historians who are looking back at this period and wanted to study the impeachments of Donald Trump to have a book that, that went through it and explained how it happened and why we chose that remedy and what it was like uh, to actually try the case and what the atmosphere was like in the Senate. Uh, but I also wanted it to be accessible to people uh, and yes. one that, uh, that people would uh, enjoy reading. Although, as you say, it's, uh, it's not a light read. Well, I, I would say, though, it's more enjoyable to read, given that you're including so much uh, detail and the reason behind every move. And it's fascinating because it tells you how something like this works and how a team like the uh, the managers, in, in your case, how that worked and how it worked to get the impeachment and what the inside looks like. I think it's more interesting to, to see the blow by blow and the motivation behind it. And, you know, there, there are moments where you see the argument within the case changing, where basically, and this was a dramatic moment to me, and this is something that you changed on the seat your, by the seat of your pants, which was they were basically conceding, yeah, okay, he's guilty of this, but why should we remove him? And I thought that was a very dramatic pivot point. Uh, you know, that's exactly right. Um, the Republicans, many of them would go out to the cameras during the course of the trial and they would repeat the president's uh, mantra of defense that there had been no quid pro quo, uh, that the president hadn't withheld hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid to coerce Ukraine into helping him cheat in the election. Um, but it soon became apparent to me that they didn't believe that at all, that they didn't believe the president at all. Uh, in fact, I think Ted Cruz uh, was reported, told the Trump defense team to stop making that argument of no quid pro quo because nobody believed them. And it wasn't until I was uh, ready to make one of the closing arguments for the day that one of the staff grabbed my arm and, uh, and said, they think you've proven him guilty. They want to know why she, he should be removed. And, and I have to say, it, it shouldn't have come to me as such a, a revelation uh, that that the senators were all acknowledging that they'd proven him guilty and that they still, you know, had a question about why he should be removed. After all, if a president is going to withhold money from an ally who's at war with our adversary, the Russians, to get their help in cheating in the election, you would think that would be enough. But, uh, but it wasn't. <laughs> and so I, I, I did make that pivot to talking about why he was such a danger to the country, things that I didn't really have to prove like his lack of morality, his inability to tell right from wrong, his fundamental untruthfulness and indecency, all the many reasons why leaving him in an office would be so dangerous. 
It was nice that you could use shorthand for that and didn't have to explain much. His lack of morality and everybody going, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. His lack of truthfulness. Uh, yeah, okay, okay. You don't, <laughs> you don't have to go any further. We got it. We know that one. But what you basically said was he's going to keep doing it. If you quit him, he's going to keep doing this. And <laughs> guess what happened? He kept doing it. You know how small that Senate floor is. It's so much different than being in the House. You can see everyone's expression. You can see if they're paying attention, if they're moved or they're falling asleep or what the situation is. And when I would make those comments about Trump's uh, lack of decency, his, his, uh, you know, his inability, inability to tell right from wrong, it wasn't like the senators were shaking their heads in vehement disagreement. They all understood exactly who we were dealing with. And it really didn't require any you know, great uh, clairvoyance to see that if they left him in office, he was going to try to cheat in the next election in new and worse ways. And of course, tragically, that's exactly what happened. So um, I guess I should back up a little. Basically, you cover three investigations. Uh, one is Russia. One is uh, Ukraine. And those of which you were managing, basically, in the House. The last one, of course, is, is January 6th. And, and Russia pissed me off no end. And uh, let, let's talk a little bit about Bill Barr, shall we? Good guy? <laughs> uh, no, very much not. Uh, and, you know, one of the, the themes running through the book is something that the historian Robert Caro once said in an interview, that power doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. It doesn't always reveal us for our best, but it reveals who we are. And power revealed uh, Bill Barr to be utterly craven, uh, utterly willing to do anything to maintain his seat at the feet of Donald Trump. Uh, and if it meant betraying Bob Mueller and misrepresenting his report, uh, lying to the country about what it said, then that's what he would do. And indeed, that's what he did. Um, if it meant intervening in specific criminal cases to protect people covering up for the president, like Roger Stone, uh, who was convicted of lying to our committee and intimidating witnesses uh, to try to coerce them into lying to our committee, then he would intervene in their sentencing to reduce their sentencing. Uh, and if it meant intervening to make complete cases go away, as he did with Michael Flynn, who also lied uh, in his case to the FBI to hide his contacts with the Russians, then he would do that too. And most pernicious, uh, Bill Barr was willing to use the Justice Department as a cudgel uh, to go after the president's enemies in, in political investigations. Uh, I felt while he was in office uh, that he was the second most dangerous man in the country. Um, and you wouldn't have known this about Bill Barr, I think, from when he served during the George W. Bush administration, because he was surrounded by different kind of people then. But surrounded by Donald Trump uh, and his cronies, uh, he revealed himself, I think, to be just as craven as his boss. He sort of auditioned for the job by writing an opinion or an editorial that basically said, you can't, can't you know, impeach this guy. You can't convict this guy of what he did, right? That, that's exactly right. Um, he wrote this uh, lengthy a memorandum, uh, you know, castigating the Mueller investigation. And that was his audition. That was his job application. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I don't think he should have ever been uh, confirmed given that history. Uh, and even then, uh, when he was asked during his confirmation whether he would recuse himself, um, he said that he would seek the opinion of the ethics lawyers at the Department of Justice, but he refused to agree to follow it, follow their advice. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I'm sure because he knew exactly what they would say. I will seek their opinion and then ignore it if I choose exactly. to. Yeah, he 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 became uh, his Roy Cohen. Yes, that's exactly right. Here's here's my bugaboo. Did did Barr at any point say there was no collusion, or did he just hint at that in any of his public pronouncements? Oh no, he 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 absolutely uh, denied collusion. And, uh, you know, first he, uh, as you'll recall, he issued his summary, right. um, misrepresenting the report. But then he, when he finally had to release the report after waiting weeks, uh, letting his summary essentially form the public narrative, even right. though Bob Mueller had written his own summary, which Barr refused to publish. So Barr wanted to publish 
Barr's summary, which would mislead the public, and, and then wait for weeks until he would release the report and the public would see that his summary had been a lie. Uh, but even when Barr was going to release the report, he didn't do it without first doing a press conference to misrepresent yeah. it again. And in that press conference, uh, he just echoed the president's claims of no collusion and went in to talk about how sympathetic a situation uh, Trump was in and how he fully cooperated, which was another lie, right. because, of course, he refused to even testify. And Rosenstein was behind him. That, that's what puzzled me, because Rosenstein had to know he was lying. Yes, yes. And so what, what's the deal with that? Well, I, I, I write about that, too. And uh, I think with Rod Rosenstein, he, he just wasn't strong enough to stand up to someone uh, as, as uh, corrupt uh, as the president and Bill Barr. Uh, it wasn't that Rod Rosenstein himself was bad or corrupt, but he didn't have the strength to stand up to others who were. And so he allowed himself to be used as a prop during that, uh, that false press conference. Uh, and in fact, one of the most interesting uh, aspects of that press conference before finally releasing the report is a reporter asked Barr during the press conference, which actually had the effect of bringing the press conference to an end. Do you really think it's appropriate for you to be here spinning the, the Mueller report? Uh, why isn't Mueller here? It's his report. And Barr says arrogantly, no, it's my report. Uh, and, really? he, and, and that's um, right. That's right. That's and right. Rosenstein standing behind him. Uh, when he arrogantly asserts, no, it's his report, you could see this kind of smirk on his face as the, the two of them walk off the stage. And this, too, is a, you know, a, a running theme throughout the book, which is you see in various degrees and forms so many of my Republican colleagues, so many of those who went to serve in the administration that previously had unblemished records, I think, like Rod Rosenstein, slowly over time compromised themselves, some in very big ways, some in smaller ways. But then you also see, see some heroic people, you know, Dan Coates, who I know you served yep, with, yep. a Republican senator from Indiana. He wouldn't go along with Trump's false lines about his love affair with North Korea and about how the, you know, Vladimir Putin walked on water and Coates got fired for it. Yep. And uh, I have you know, a lot of respect for, for what he did and his unwillingness to, to do anything or say anything just to hold on to his job. Let's, let's talk about that, that, that press conference, though. And let's talk about the collusion. First of all, Mueller, on page two of the report, says we're not looking at collusion. Uh, that's not a legal term, right? That's that, not. That's exactly it's right. Not in the statutes. The term he was looking for was conspiracy. But there's no like, Your Honor, we find the defendant guilty of being in cahoots. You can't be guilty of being in cahoots, and neither can you be guilty of collusion because it's not in the statutes, right? That's exactly right. And Mueller makes that clear from the very beginning, and then Barr immediately lies about it. Uh, and if you look at the facts of what Mueller uncovered, what we uncovered uh, in the Intel Committee, what uh, journalists uncovered. Plenty um, of collusion. The evidence of, oh, my God. I mean, <laughs> I mean consider, consider this, Al. Um, Trump's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, is secretly meeting with Konstantin Kalimnik, an agent of Russian intelligence, and giving that agent internal campaign polling data and information about their strategy in key battleground states, while that same Kremlin intelligence agency is running a covert social media campaign to elect Donald Trump. Um, and, you know, it's hard to imagine, uh, you know, more direct and graphic evidence of the, the campaign's collusion with Russia, then they're giving internal data to the Kremlin intelligence agency that's running part of their campaign. And let's explain what internal polling data is. Internal polling data is that the campaign team, I had a pollster in my races. You have a pollster in your races, right? And yep. the pollster spends a lot of money digging deep into people's attitudes. And he gave... If I remember, he uh, Manafort gave Kalimnik uh, polling data from Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Four crucial battleground states, three of which threw the election to this guy. And this is, is like saying, this is what black voters in Detroit 
or in Philadelphia and Milwaukee. And Kalimnik is an agent. He's, a, he's an agent of, of the GRU, right? Yep, yep. And that's who's doing this stuff from St. Petersburg and targeting people who have said, I really, uh, you know, I'm with Black Lives Matter. They've, you know, Facebook knows they've gone to Black Lives Matter. Target them and target them and write, you know, Hillary called uh, young black men super predators and spin it and lie it. And the undervote in those cities, Milwaukee, Detroit, and Philadelphia made the difference in the election. Yep. I mean, if you're the Kremlin and you're running a, uh, a clandestine social media campaign to help elect Donald Trump, which is what they were doing, they had a whole team of people in St. Petersburg whose full-time job was helping Donald Trump win. And you want to know what messages resonate and where to target them, uh, what issues really divide the Democratic base and would discourage people from voting or enrage the conservatives and turn them out to vote then you want internal campaign polling data. Um, but of course, this was just one illustration uh, of what sure. the Trump campaign and the Russians were doing. The Russians hacked uh, the Clinton emails and they told the Trump campaign they had done so. They offered uh, dirt on Hillary to the Trump campaign and the president's son said, we'd love it. And the list goes on and on. Uh, but but one thing that, that I think gets lost too in all of this is it was the day after Bob Mueller testified, and Donald Trump thought he had finally beaten the rap for his Russia misconduct. It was the day after that he was on the phone with the president of Ukraine asking for yet another country's help to cheat in a yet another election. And to me, uh, who had been uh, an opponent of impeachment, I was not one of those people uh, urging that we impeach the president the moment he got elected. Um, that really changed my mind because clearly the lesson Donald Trump took from escaping accountability for his Russia collusion uh, was he felt he could do it all over again and even worse. And I think you can draw a direct line from the uh, inability to hold him accountable for his Russian misconduct to his willingness to engage in Ukraine misconduct. And you can draw a direct line from the senator's decision to acquit him of that, knowing he was guilty to what would come next, uh, this bloody insurrection. Which goes back to what we started here with was your line of, of yeah, he's going to do this again. If you quit him now, he's just going to do it again. And you know he's going to do it again. That's what was so powerful about your thing. You were just saying, you know it. We all know it. He will do it again. Now, you talked about the Mueller testimony in the book. Uh, it was shocking to people. He had obviously lost a step or two. And uh, I had, you know... I had questioned him a number of times in hearings, and he was so, so impressive. And he had, again, lost a step or two. And that that testimony said, okay, well, that's over. That's over. What? And the Trump people thought, well, okay, good, that's over. Now what are we going to do? Oh, I know. We're going <laughs> to demand <laughs> that Zelensky start an investigation on the Bidens. And, uh, you know, in exchange for uh, a military, they help they need to fight Russia. Well, that, that's exactly right. And, and um, that was a really hard chapter for me to write because I, I had such respect, have such respect for Bob Mueller. And, uh, and yet I wanted to describe, you know, what it was like in the shock uh, as we sat in the bunker, which is what we call our intelligence committee space, uh, three floors below the Capitol. And. I had asked uh, the Democratic members of our committee to join me and watch the Judiciary Committee testimony of Mueller because our committee was going to be a meeting and hearing from him immediately thereafter. And I wanted to make sure that if we needed to change or adjust our line of questioning, that we were oh, aware right. of everything right. he was doing and saying in the other committee. And within the first five minutes, uh, I, was, I was shocked at how much he had changed and quickly you know, encouraged my Intel Committee members to cut down the number of their questions and the length of their questions, not seek narrative answers that we weren't going to get. And we had to completely re retool um, in a heartbeat. And uh, it, it was, you know, I, I suddenly understood why Miller had been so reluctant to testify and his staff had been so protective of him. And, you know, had I known, I would not have 
pushed so hard to get him to come in and, and probably would not have pushed to have him come in at all. I read that part and I just, I have to wonder, I know you, you said that his team was saying like, mm, don't, but why didn't they just go? No, don't. Cause the one with the judiciary committee, the first one really hurt and kind of ended the Russia investigation. And, um, uh, and kind of that was it. But of course, of course, Zelensky. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I remember when the, uh, the White House was forced to release the call record of that discussion between Trump and Zelensky. I was back in the bunker and uh, we finally get this record of the call. We were shocked that it was so blatant uh, what he was uh, demanding of the president of Ukraine. And the more shocking it was, as we read on, uh, the more amazed we were that they had released the thing, that, that Trump somehow thought this was going to help him. And uh, there was this this chorus of expletives around the room as uh, all of us were reacting to just how uh, heavy. Holy moly. <laughs> people were saying, gee whiz. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> gee, did you hear that? My goodness. <laughs> and you know, the funniest part about this is that you did this thing after the, We'd all heard the tape of uh, doing an impression of him as if he was a mafia boss, because it basically was a shakedown. So you kind of did like, oh, you know, uh, yeah, Ukraine's a nice place. Uh, be, it, be a real shame if uh, Putin were to attack you and you had nothing to respond with, you know, something like that. So you did. And they came back with, how dare he change the words <laughs> that uh, that Trump said in his phone call to Zelensky, as if you were actually saying, this is what the president said. The president said, you have a really nice country there, Ukraine, but we're going to have mafia guys kill you if you die. <laughs> and they didn't stop with that. No, and, and actually, they uh, the president built this whole uh, false narrative about it uh, at his rallies that uh, proposed that I had actually gotten a transcript of the call well in advance, and I knew exactly what he had said, and I misrepresented it uh, to the country. And just to show me, he released the call record uh, as if he released the call record uh, as a result of my mocking his words, uh, which got everything wrong, including the chronology. What did you say? Can, can, you, can you duplicate what you said? Oh, you know, I, I, I basically said uh, that uh, this was, you know, that this call in, in some and substance was like a, a mob boss shaking that someone down. Uh, you know, you've got a nice country there. It would be a shame if something happened to it. And, uh, um, and listen, I never said that. I never and said, <laughs> and, and you know, listen carefully because I'm only going to say this seven times. You know, interesting at the hearing, the Republicans really didn't make a big deal of it, but the president, uh, I think, just was incensed that I was mocking him. Uh, and I remember during the trial, I knew that the the Trump defense people were going to attack me over it uh, because it was so much under the president's skin. And I did kind of a pre-buttle of all of the Trump defenses, and and I, you know, I said, for example. Uh, you know, they're going to claim that the president said there was no quid pro quo and therefore that, you know, there couldn't have been a quid pro quo because of the well-known principle of criminal law that if the defendant says he didn't do it, he couldn't have done it. Uh, and then, and then I got to, you know, and they're going to say that Adam Schiff mocked the president. How outrageous Adam Schiff mocked the president in this parody. Um, and, and then I said, uh, I learned something very important from, from this, which is Donald Trump evidently doesn't like to be mocked very much. Uh, he has a thin skin. Who knew? At least he's never mocked anybody. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding. But it was amazing because clearly what you were doing, yeah, nice country you got there. Yeah. The president never said that to Zelensky. And it's like, guys, and I never understood, I mean, you know, I was a comedian, and I just didn't understand why you just didn't go, okay, here's what I said. Do you really think, <laughs> do you really, are you really trying to make a case 
that I was putting words in his mouth as opposed to just doing, you know, an equivalent of a mob guy doing it. Are you guys serious? Could you say it again. Accuse me of it again. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, uh, the thing of it is that, uh, and, and I don't remember exactly how I parried his words, but uh, it was pretty clear. In fact, not only was it pretty clear, I said before I uh, I did it that uh, that I was parroting his words, and I said afterwards that I was uh, this was not uh, verbatim of what he said. But anyway, I, he, he, it was interesting because uh, it became such a shtick of his. You know, there were other things, you know, other mistakes that I made certainly um, that to me were much more uh, clearly a mistake. Uh, and so part of me thought, oh, let him attack me over this parody. Uh, rather than attack me about other things, um, but but you're right. Uh, it, it is among other things deeply ironic that this man who is constantly mocking others should have such a thin skin uh, as to be so incensed that someone would mock his words. Yeah, he's a terrible person. Anyway, uh, let's keep going. So uh, basically. They go to you and you're hearing like, well, uh, we know he's guilty, <laughs> but uh, and they got the votes, right? There's just no way you're going to get what? Well, how many did you need Four? Uh, well, actually, we needed a lot more than that because the okay. two thirds requirement. Um, oh, okay. and and we knew we knew going into it. Uh, it was you needed you four know, to get witnesses. That's what you needed. Yes, that's exactly okay. Right. That was what the four were. And yeah. one of the witnesses was Bolton, who had written a book and was ready to testify, willing to testify. But the Republicans wouldn't. They, they must have known that if he testified, it was all over, right? I think that what they what they knew was that if he testified, it would open the door to other witnesses, and they would lose control of the trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and in the face of direct testimony by uh, someone who was in the room that this is exactly why Trump withheld the money, that it, it would just raise the difficulty level for Republicans to ignore the facts. They would still probably ignore them, but it would make it much more difficult for them to explain back home why they still voted to acquit him after John Bolton said that the quid pro quo was right out in the open. And probably heard him in, in his re-election um yeah yeah uh <laughs> i think it was you know mitch mcconnell trying to protect his members from having to make an even more difficult uh terrible vote okay we're gonna take a quick break we'll be right back with adam schiff hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. We're back with Adam Schiff. Basically, the rest of the thrust of the book is moving toward January 6th and the big lie. And sort of, it's now become clear that every Republican who wants to be reelected is buying into the big lie. I just 
I saw Grassley embracing the president the other day and thought like, hmm, you know, if a guy's 87 years old and he won't risk his career, uh, probably he's not going to do it at some later point. Yeah, it was so striking during that interview uh, with Grassley. And I don't remember exactly how he said it, but something along the lines of, well, you know, he he has the support of, I don't know, 80 or 90 percent of the Republicans in Iowa. Uh, I wouldn't be very smart not to want his endorsement. And, uh, you know, I remember thinking to myself, <laughs> how smart is it to want the endorsement of somebody who caused a bloody insurrection against the Capitol? Um, and I just continue to be astonished by how willing members of Congress have been to uh, set aside their ideology, their concern about what's best for the country, even their morality to embrace uh, this man who's, who has so destroyed the institution they serve in and what their party supposedly stood for. Uh, you know, I came to a terrible conclusion uh, within the first year of the Trump presidency, which seems now so self-evident. But I was investigating Russia and Russia's meddling in our election. And then it, 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 it just dawned on me that, okay, Russia is a threat to our democracy, but the much bigger threat now comes from within. It comes from a president who believes the press is the enemy of the people. And it comes from members of Congress that are willing to fall anywhere. Uh, and uh, it comes from an attorney general who's willing to use it as a, the whole department, as a cudgel to go after the president's enemies. And it comes from a director of intelligence and John Radcliffe, who is willing to mislead the country about who's interfering in our elections because it suits the president. And then, of course, it, it now comes from so many people that I serve with, who I now describe as insurrectionists in suits and ties, who are pushing this big lie all around the country about the election, uh, undermining the very foundations of our democracy that we allow elections to settle you know, who should govern. Uh, and they're out there trying to strip independent elections officials of their duties and give them over to partisan boards uh, so that they can overturn the next election they lose. Um, it's very, very clear what's causing this threat to our democracy now. And it's not predominantly uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, it's Donald Trump and those that are following him down this dangerous path. We've arrived at this moment now, right now where what everything you just said speaks to the uh, peril that we're in of losing our democracy, because we've seen these laws pass in a number of states, which will give state legislatures the ability to overturn election results determined by people like uh, secretaries of state. And unless we fix that, um, there's no real reason to believe that they will not steal the next presidential election, let alone this next midterm. That, that to me, is the paramount danger the country faces. And for that reason, I think we all have a, a duty right now to do everything within our power to protect the democracy. And as we're fighting to get HR1 passed and the John Lewis bill passed, um, we need to employ a you know dual strategy of a legislative strategy along those lines, but also we need to uh, use a Stacey Abrams-like effort in every single state in the union uh, and be out there organizing and, and overcoming any hurdles put in our way. Uh, if they try to uh, uh, monkey around with the ballot box, then we're going to have to use litigation and poll watchers and do everything we can. Um, one of the things that I I go to great pains to do uh, in the book um, is talk about the heroic stories of the time, the Marie Ivanoviches and the Alexander Vindmans, Fiona Hills and Bill Taylors and others. Uh, so that people are inspired to, to defend our democracy right now. These are all people who came forward in the Ukraine uh, piece of this. Vindman, of course, the emigre from Russia, from the Soviet Union, who had to leave the military and had been on the call. And then Ivanovich, who was the ambassador who was put in some jeopardy and danger, uh, all these people who, who showed up and, you know, risked a lot for our democracy. My question is, is that it feels like it's up to the Senate now to 
take some risks for our democracy. And the risk is changing the filibuster rules and not even necessarily getting rid of the filibuster. But, uh, you know, I've talked about modifying the, the filibuster in such a way that you need 41 to sustain a filibuster and they have to stay on the floor and you have to do a talking filibuster. And I think uh, knowing my former colleagues, they couldn't stay on the floor, 41 of them. You know, you can cycle nine in and out, but they wouldn't be able to stay there that long. And I'd like to see the debate on on the uh, Freedom to Vote Act. Yeah. To me, that's that's where your book leads, I believe, is on that. Because Stacey Abrams turned them out. Thank God we won Georgia and we won uh, those two runoffs. Thank God that we wouldn't have the majority in the Senate if it weren't for that. But if they can reverse this, if they can take it away from a Raffensburger and give it to the state legislature and, you know, the state legislature can give him 11,780 votes, then it doesn't matter how big our turnout is. No, you're absolutely right. Um, we need to change the, the nature of the filibuster, uh, do a carve out for voting rights or require, as you say, that senators take to the floor and hold the floor. If they're going to pose measures to protect the integrity of our elections, then let them take to the floor and explain to the country over and over and over again uh, why they're so determined to disenfranchise people of color or uh, strip people who uh, who are independent professionals of their responsibility to oversee elections and replace them with, with partisan hacks allied to the former president. It shouldn't be that hard. And uh, my own sense of it is uh, during the during the first trial, we were trying to persuade Joe Manchin to convict someone who had won his state by, I don't know, probably 30 points. That was a much higher hurdle, frankly, than persuading him that he should protect the voting rights of the people of his state. And and he was one of the co-authors of this uh, latest election reform bill. I mean, with Klobuchar and others and, and uh, Warnock. I think he really cares about this. And I think this is something he has considered, this modification. So um, I have some hope. I do too. I think there's a real pathway here uh, and we just need to find it. Um, and I, I think it'll, it'll require President Biden's personal time on task, which you'll mention, to work with him to figure out, okay, what's the pathway? And I'm hoping that, that you know, the Senate taking up the legislation this week uh, is a way of demonstrating to Joe Manchin, that they're trying to do everything to make it bipartisan, but if they can't, then we need to take whatever steps are necessary to protect people's right to vote. I don't think they'll get one Republican vote. I don't think so either. I mean, the whole yeah. Republican strategy, uh, because their ideas are so backward and unpopular, um, they realize they can't win if people vote, and their own, own strategy, their only strategy, is to disenfranchise people and also pave the way for overturning the election if and when they lose. You talk a lot about members who you respected and who you, whom you had worked with, and you're kind of surprised over and over again <laughs> by them. And, uh, you know, I, I understand that. I, I had Republican members who I was friends with and who I had respect for who now are just uh, beyond the pale. But a lot of this was happening before the Tea Party, that faction, the Jim Jordans. Uh, there, there are a lot of them. We have like two parties, and one party is just, is just. There's nothing there now anymore. That's exactly right. I, the Republican Party and its leadership have become a autocratic cult around the former president. There not a party of ideas. They're just a party beholden to a single person, a single deeply flawed person. And uh, and it was hard to watch how these people that I work with, who I believed, you know, I respected them because I believed that they believed what they were saying. It turns out they didn't believe it at all. Um, but you're right. It did start before Trump. Uh, I think Benghazi was the first demonstrable proof that Republicans were willing to create a complete alternate factual universe that people could live in and, and use even the tragic death of four Americans to uh, demonize and attack a presidential candidate. 
But even well before that, you know, I tell a story in the book about uh, sitting on on the plane flying to DC next to Kevin McCarthy oh, and having yeah. a conversation with him. Um, and uh, and then when we land, he went off to the press and completely misrepresented our conversation. I I went up to him on the House floor the next morning. And I said, Kevin, you know, if we're having a private conversation on the plane, I would have thought it was a private conversation. But, you know, I said the exact opposite of what you told the press. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, I know, Adam, but you know how it goes. You know um, how it goes. And Yeah, you know how it goes. And uh, I said, no, Kevin, I don't know how it goes. You just make stuff up uh, and that's how you operate because that's not how I operate. Uh, but it is how he operates. And, and in that respect... He was really made for a moment like this when his party and his party's leader cares nothing about the truth, uh, is willing to make up any false narrative about anything, do anything, say anything in order to gain power and keep it. And, uh, you know, of all the things that, that Trump and his accolades did over the last four years, uh, fewer as destructive as this relentless attack on the truth. I wrote a book called Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them. Oh, great book. Balance, look great at the book. Right. Thank you. Uh, this has been just been happening, and you know, it's it's bad when you see Jim Lankford, James Lankford of Oklahoma, just not willing to say the big lie is a lie. It's one thing, Jim Jordan, you you can count on saying the big lie is true. <laughs> I mean, I uh, someday I, I want to talk to you. Just uh, we don't have time. We have to go, uh, and I want to respect your time because I know you're tremendously busy in your job as uh, chairman of the Intel Committee, and you're also on the uh, January sixth uh, committee or the commission there. And uh, anyway, I just I just really enjoyed the book, and uh, it uh, there's a lot of history in this book, but in a way that's I, I just found. Uh, fascinating and uh, so thank you thank you for for the book well thank you and uh you know uh, one, one last thing i'll say about uh, about midnight in washington because you mentioned jim jordan one of the most frequent questions i get is whether people whether the republicans really believe the things they say publicly uh that is what do they what do they do and what do they say in private and uh you know, Jim Jordan, I, I think, is one of those people for whom this is all just a game. There's your team, there's our team, and you just do it after you, whatever you have to do, lie, cheat, steal to win. And uh, and if he got benched by his team, uh, he'd probably offer to play for our, our team. And so, um, you know, I, I think the decline of the Republican Party has been a long time in the making. Um, but you had this. Uh, supremely talented grifter uh, come along named Donald Trump um, and the conservatives thought they could make use of his popularity and populism and he just ate their lunch and um, and now he he owns that party uh, they will do whatever he wants including uh, lie about an election and undermine the fabric of our democracy um, and until until that party is taken back by conservatives and people with an ideology, uh, there's no accommodating them. Uh, there's no accommodating an autocratic cult. They're just going to have to be beaten at the polls. Um, and people can't despair. We don't have the, that luxury. Um, we need to organize. We need to, to get our legislative work done. And on the ground, we need to do our job uh, so that we can look back on this time as a terrible gauntlet that we had to run, but we ran it, we got through it, and, uh, and moved the country forward. Yeah, that's the spirit, and I know that's what's going to happen, because I'm an optimist, and I never think that the bad guys will win. Amen. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, that was a little sarcastic. But... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Adam. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. No, please. Um, wonderful to talk to you again. You take care of yourself. You too. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week.
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember Remix and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fu, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam packed, music filled weekly party where hip hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.